Well, Heavenly Father, just pray, Lord, that Your Word would speak to us today. Holy Spirit, come. Open our ears and our hearts that we might receive all that You have for us. That we might be a people who faithfully, faithfully seeks after You in all things. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, as we are reading the psalm this morning, one verse really in particular just caught my... And I think it's kind of the theme for today's sermon. So the 84th Psalm and the 4th verse. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on the pilgrim's way. And I think as Christians, um, we have to first be willing to admit that we are on the pilgrim's way. No matter where we find ourselves, right, we are on a journey. We have not arrived. I think this morning, and primarily I'm going to preach on the parable from this morning, um, it is one of a number of parables we've been kind of hearing over the last few Sundays, if you think about it. And one author in particular calls this, or these parables, the upside-down kingdom. Because in these parables, Jesus really is saying God's kingdom is a whole lot different than what you think it is. Okay? And what I'm going to do today is, first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at one word in particular. And then we're going to look at a little bit of history and then we're going to try to pull that all together. Because what I propose to you this morning is that the sin of pride is a disease that is rampant in our country today. And is even rampant in the church sometimes. And that the sin of pride is such a terrible sin because it affects the two most important things in our life. Our relationship with God and our relationships with other people. Amen? Alright. So that's what I hope to, to show you this morning and that's what God's put on my heart because God's actually been the last couple of sermons I've preached have been on this topic of pride. So, when I started this, I was kind of looking around the house for a dictionary. I found my daughter's dictionary in her room, which is the Webster's New Revised Dictionary. And here's how they define pride. Pride is pleasure in your own abilities, achievements, and possessions. I'm like, that doesn't sound too, too bad, right? But then we have another dictionary in our house. It's kind of the dictionary on my desk, which is a, it's a facsimile of an 1828 Noah Webster dictionary. It's one of the first dictionaries in our country. And here's what Noah Webster, so he would be like the great-great-great-great-grandfather, I guess, of this Webster dictionary that I just read from. Here's what he had to say about pride. He said that pride is inordinate self-esteem unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty airs, distance, reserve, and often in contempt for others. Wow, that's quite a different definition, isn't it? It's quite a different definition. Now, in the early church teachings, in the early church teachings, here's what they had to say about pride. Pride is the sin that severs the soul from grace. 
You see, because I can't accept God's grace if I'm filled with my own accomplishments and my own self. And the one that is representative and the very essence of evil. Wow. And so this idea of pride is probably something we need to look at a little bit more. The 16th proverb tells us that pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And so let's step back for just a minute and look at kind of the scene that's unfolding here. Two guys go to prayer at the temple. And this would have been like midweek prayer. Um, there probably would have been other people there. But the parable focuses on two guys. And in this whole idea of the upside-down kingdom, all of the, par all of the uh, parables that we've been hearing have always dealt with a Pharisee and either a Samaritan or, in this case, a tax collector. Okay? So who were the Pharisees? First of all, I think we kind of like to give the Pharisees a negative rap. But really, in their day, the Pharisees were the keepers of the faith. They had been around for about 400 years when Jesus um, arrives on the scene. They'd been around about 400 years. And if you think about today's reading from the Old Testament in Jeremiah, Jeremiah was that really... He was that prophet given the burden of coming to tell Israel basically everything that was going to happen to them because of their pride. Because they had worshipped after idols, because they had sought other things, because they had been carried away by their own wealth and so forth, all the things that God has blessed them with. And so the Pharisees kind of were born out of a world that was not very friendly to the Jews. Okay? So they actually arrive on the scene right after, uh, right after kind of Alexander the Great and this whole idea of Hellenizing the world, right? That, that Greek culture was going to take over, was going to be everything, because not all Jews were against that. In fact, most of the Jews. They saw some good things in that Hellenization, right? And many kind of capitulated to that. But the Pharisees were that group of people that said, no, we are going to live by the law. We are going to keep the faith pure until these Gentile dogs are no longer in our presence. That was, the, that was who the Pharisees were. And there actually weren't even that many Pharisees. I think at the time... Um, that Jesus lived on this earth, something like there were only like 1,200 Pharisees in all of Jerusalem. So they were kind of at the pinnacle of society. They were really looked up upon because they were the people that kept the faith. They were unpolluted by the world. And so really that's not a bad thing, is it? I mean, we don't want, I don't know about you, but it's one of the things I struggle with, right? Is being polluted by the world. I get drawn very much into worldly things. And so they were saying, that's not going to be us. The problem is, is they became proud in it. And so in this parable, the Pharisee looks He's looking around, right? And he begins to what? He begins to really testify about himself to God. He really is praying to himself in some ways. But we know that only that true prayer is only offered to God alone. 
He was really giving himself a testimonial before God. He was kind of reminding God, God, remember all the things that I've done. I'm not like the rest of the world, right? I'm a Pharisee. I haven't been polluted by the culture. And as he looks around, he sees in the corner of his eyes someone he knows to be a tax collector. Now, who were the tax collectors? I would suggest today that tax collectors were even more hated than Samaritans. Because most tax collectors were actually Jewish by birth. They were Jews who had allowed themselves to be hired by the Roman government to collect taxes. And the only way that they made a living was by taking an additional amount on top of whatever the Roman government or the Jewish temple tax required. Okay, So they were the ones that collected the taxes and they had to decide for themselves what they were going to collect because not only did they in the end have to give the government what the government required, but they had to have enough to live upon. And so they became known as cheats. They were considered traitors to the Jewish nation. Okay? Because they had aligned themselves with the Roman government and they were actually living off of that government and living off of the people. Okay? And some of them were quite uh, scurrilous. Right? They would take large amounts of money. And lived quite well off, lived in the nicer places, okay, because they kind of wanted to live where the Romans were. Because you can imagine they weren't much liked if they were in your community. Um, so it wasn't like today when we call the IRS and we're irritated or we send in a bunch of paperwork, right? And we say bad things about some bureaucrat behind an office that we don't know, we'll never see. These people were in the public, right? They came around and collected taxes or they set up booths. Matthew was one of these tax collectors, right? And so we kind of get that picture of Jesus picking people that aren't really who you would have thought, right? How many Pharisees walked with the Lord? None. None that I know of. Okay? And so the Pharisee sees out of the corner of the eye this tax collector, and he continues after he says that he's glad that he's not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. And the reality of it is, as a good Pharisee, he would have done those things. And those things were actually above and beyond the requirements. Right? Under Jewish law, there was only one mandatory fast, okay? and that was before the Day of Atonement. But he went beyond that. He kept the fast twice a week. And in, under Jewish law, they weren't required to give a tenth of everything. Right? They were required to give a tenth of first fruits and certain things, but he gave a tenth of everything. So he actually was above and beyond the law. But he brings that before God as a way of saying, hey, be faithful to me because I've been more than faithful to you. Just to get an idea of how that Pharisaical pride could be, we have actually some recorded writings of some of the rabbis of that time. One was a rabbi named Simeon ben Joshia, and he actually wrote this. If there are two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. And if there's only one, I'm he. So he was very quick to throw his son under the bus, right? 
So the Pharisee brings his righteous deeds to God. And because of that, he believes God should hear his prayers and bless him. But he also looks with disdain on the tax collector. Now the tax collector exhibits the opposite of pride. He exhibits something called humility. And I believe it is what we are all called to as Christians. I believe the early church was right when they said that pride severs us from grace. Because in my pride, I forget my need for God. In my pride, I say, hey, I've got this. I can do and I can walk. And in my pride, I begin to look at other people differently, don't I? But the tax collector, he comes not out of pride of self-sufficiency, but in humility knowing he needs God's mercy. The tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, actually, in the original transcripts, it does not say a sinner. It says the sinner. Okay? Because here's the secret. It is very easy in this life and in this world to be prideful if we set our lives alongside other people. Amen? And you see it all the time. I mean, I think, I think in the society we live in, especially with the, the internet and social media, you see a lot of that. I mean, think about our politicians and our leaders. They set themselves against one another, don't they? And in that, they can say all kinds of prideful things. I'm right, you're wrong. All of those signs of things. But in reality, for us as Christians, we know ultimately that the only life that our life is compared against is that of Christ. And when we see that, we realize, have mercy on me, Lord, the sinner. The tax collector was saying, not only was he a sinner, he was the sinner. The sinner par excellence. Kind of as Paul sees himself, right? As the chief of sinners, Paul calls himself at one point. The reality of this is, as the tax collector comes before God, seeking His grace and mercy, it's costing him something. You see, for the tax collector to truly repent, it would mean leaving his profession and starting over again. It means paying fivefold all the people he has cheated, if you look at Mosaic Law. And in his humility, he realizes it's impossible. It's impossible apart from God. It has been written that no man who is proud can say, can pray. For the gate of heaven is so low that none can enter save upon his knees. And so the first point is simply this. In pride we cannot even go before God. Because when we are walking in our pride, we are saying, 
Lord, you must hear me because of all that I've done for you. And for a Christian, our position must be, Lord, please hear me in your mercy because I am a sinner. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If our Lord could humble himself, who had every reason to take pride because he lived a perfect life, because he is God incarnate, why should we think that God would hear us in our pride? The second point no man who despises his fellow man can pray. In prayer, we do not lift ourselves, but we are called to lift our fellow man. Once you and I have come to know God's mercy and love in our lives, our call, our call is not to be self-righteous before others. No matter what it is that we do, because what we do, we do simply out of gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. But we are to lift our fellow man in prayer. Because we know that we are one of a great army of sinning, suffering, sorrowing humanity. Our hope, joy, and peace is always and only found in God's love and mercy. Our humility must go beyond how we see ourselves. It must affect our attitude and actions towards others. We must learn to become selfless. And finally, the third thing. True prayer comes from setting our lives beside the life of Christ. The Pharisee was actually right in what he said. He wasn't lying. He did all of those things. He fasted twice a week. He gave a tenth. He was, had not been polluted by the Gentile world, by the Greek culture that he found himself in, or the Roman culture later on. But he asked the question, am I as good as my fellow man? You and I must ask the question always, am I all that I am called to be in Christ? And when we ask that question and honestly answer it, we come to know that we are powerless in our own power to be all that we are in Christ. When we set our lives beside Jesus, there is really only one thing to be said. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. In this moment that the Pharisee and the tax collector meet, this upside-down moment, 
In a surprising reversal, the penitent tax collector is commended. This traitor, this betrayer of the nation has found favor with God. For the Almighty has accepted the tax collector's sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit. The prideful Pharisee misses the blessing. Those who arrogantly trust in themselves and despise others receive no blessing despite their religiosity. And that's true for us in the church today, just as it was in Jesus' time. For self-centered worship without humility misses the mark. We are called to be a humble people. And I would submit to you today that if we will walk in humility, the world will see us as something very different than what is going on in the world around them. And they will begin to ask, what's different? I think that's becoming kind of my prayer more and more, especially as I we have two teenagers in the house right now. We've kind of always had for a number of years now a bunch of teenagers in the house. But I've come to realize they don't really want to hear about my accomplishments. And they don't really want to hear about all the truth that I believe I've laid hold of in my life. But if they see humility in me, if they see that I am quick to ask forgiveness, if I'm quick to forgive, and I'm quick to give God thanks for His mercy and His love, then maybe as they grow and as they experience the world, They will ask one day, Dad, why are you different? Why are you different? And I will only be able to say it's because of God, Christ in me and God's love working in my life. And so I leave you with this little excerpt of a letter. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, was known for spending about three hours every morning corresponding with people. People from all over the world would write him letters. And amazingly, he would sit down and pen. Imagine this, before emails, right? Before you could just write an email and burst it out to like the 50, 60 people who had written you, your devotional or whatever. C.S. Lewis would actually pen personal letters to everyone that corresponded with him. And a dear friend of his wrote to him about pride. And his struggle with pride. And here's what Lewis had to say to him. Yes, pride is a perpetual nagging temptation. Keep on knocking it on the head, but don't be too worried about it. For as long as one knows one is proud, one is safe from the worst form of pride. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I beg you, Lord, to show us where we are proud. And to bring to our hearts and to our minds quickly those times when we are walking in our own strength and our own knowledge and all of those things that would make us proud. And help us to remember always that we are nothing without your love and your mercy. Lord, help us to be the humble people, the humble servants that you have called us to be that we might serve you in humility and love, that we might serve our fellow man, and that we might bring you glory with our lives.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.